But if you're bleeding to death, you want that platelet to be sticky. You want it to be activated and form a clot now. And if you don't form a clot in the next six hours, you're probably going to die. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Dr. Philip C. Spinella is a professor in the Departments of Surgery and Critical Care Medicine, co-director of the Trauma and Transfusion Medicine Research Center, and associate medical director at the Center for Military Medicine Research at the University of Pittsburgh. He is internationally recognized as an expert in transfusion medicine and the resuscitation of hemorrhagic shock. In this episode, you will learn about the evolution of transfusion medicine on the battlefield and how strategies for hemostatic resuscitation have moved from component therapy to whole blood transfusion. You can find out more about Dr. Spinella on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome transfusion expert, Dr. Philip C. Spinella to Wardox. Bill, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for inviting me. Dr. Spinella, you were the Assistant Chief of Pediatric Critical Care at Wolford Hall from 2003 to 2007. What brought you to military medicine? And tell us a little bit about that pathway to becoming pediatric critical care trained. Sure. Well, actually, when I was in medical school at New York Medical College, I basically needed my funding to help me get through school. And I was made aware of the USPS scholarship by actually my lab partner, Mark Smith, who was a retired artillery officer who at 40 years of age went back to med school. And Mark was the one that convinced me to apply uh, for a scholarship, and I got it. And as a result, I wound up doing my residency in pediatrics in Hawaii at Tripler. After that, I did the two years of general pediatrics at Fort Polk. And then when the Army advertised the need to train a pediatric critical care physician, I applied for the fellowship and was awarded it. And I did my fellowship at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where, interestingly, I was exposed to using whole blood for resuscitation of children with severe bleeding after cardiac surgery. And it's kind of very integral in my story over time. But after my fellowship, I was stationed at Wolford Hall. And about 10 months after that was when I was deployed to Baghdad with the first calf. So tell us a little bit about that deployment. That was 2004 to 2005. You went with the 31st Combat Support Hospital, but actually were assigned to a BCT and worked with the 31st Combat Support Hospital. Tell us about that experience and how you were able to translate your critical care skills in pediatrics to taking care of adults. And tell us if you had a chance to take care of any pediatric ICU patients. So, as you said, I deployed with the first CAVS to Baghdad in 2004. We wound up being placed in the green zone, actually right across from Hussein's seven palaces there. Actually, we were there early enough in 04 that Uday Hussein's lion cage with the two lions were still there as we rolled into Baghdad. We're going to need a picture of that. You know what? I used to have it. Okay. And there was a sign on the cage that literally said, don't feed the lions. Nice. <laughs> I can't find that picture anymore because I really wish I had it at one point. I've lost it over the years. But we wound up setting up our level 2 aid station 
I ran across the street in the basement of the Bath Party headquarter building. And this was a bombed out space. We had to put in doors, windows, electricity, and even plumbing into that facility. And while it was an active aid station, since we were in the green zone, we got flown over constantly. Didn't get to see very, very few casualties at all. So after two or three weeks of being bored out of my mind, I said to myself, let me just go to the cash and volunteer my services as a critical care doc. And that's what I did. And I started taking call in the ICU there two days a week. And they also called me for all the pediatric casualties that came. And as you might imagine, children do wind up getting caught in the crossfire, literally. And we had over 100 children admitted to the cash for the one year that I was there. It doesn't sound like a lot, but it's basically one child every three days. And when you're not set up to have the equipment or personnel to resuscitate children, it can become very challenging to do so. So part of my job there was not only to help take care of the children, was to help MacGyver the equipment that you had to be able to resuscitate children. We were being very creative that year with the adult equipment that we had. As a pediatric ICU doc, I was actually very well trained in the care of adolescent trauma. When you consider the age of soldiers, cells and airmen that we were caring for, basically between 19 to 25 years of age, it was very familiar to me. And actually, I was able to help translate some of the pediatric critical care resuscitation concepts to the adult-based critical care physicians too. So it was a full year of training concepts amongst uh, the both of us, both teams, and I think it worked uh, really well. And actually, one of the things that I brought to the table was the use of whole blood to resuscitate casualties. In my fellowship in Philly, we were using whole blood to resuscitate patients. So I show up in Baghdad and I say to the team, so where's the whole blood? Why are we only using red cells and plasma? And I then learned that, you know, outside of my fellowship, use of whole blood in the U.S. was very rare. And I said, well, it's still possible for us to use it. So we worked together as a team and built up the capacity of the walking blood bank that was barely working when I got there. And we transitioned over time from using the walking blood bank with fresh whole blood as a rescue therapy basically when patients were just about to die, kind of as a Hail Mary therapy, to within a few months using it proactively. When we would get the nine-liner that there was going to be 10, 20 casualties coming in, we would start to collect whole blood ahead of time before the patients got to the hospital so that we were being proactive about their resuscitation. Do you have any particular clinical cases that stand out from that time that just really encapsulate your experience? There's a casualty with a triple amputee and a high triple amputee. And with the rapid use of tourniquets on scene and whole blood, we were able to save this soldier's life. And it's a quite impressive image and a quite impressive save. And he, in addition to many others, there were, if I can think of the numbers correctly, there were over 200 casualties that year treated with whole blood that were exsanguinating. They were all impressive, which was why whole blood caught on quite quickly amongst the practitioners was because there was this obvious difference in the resolution of shock and coagulopathy when whole blood was being used compared to when we were using a crystalloid and red cell based resuscitation. 
mean, we didn't have access to plasma. Of course, we used plasma often too, but didn't have access to, to platelets. And the difference in just, again, the resolution of shocking coagulopathy drying up the, the field with whole blood was so dramatic that we incorporated it incredibly quickly over the next few months after I arrived in Baghdad. And as others have continued to get experience with it too, has just become the standard of care. So you know, one of the things that we discuss a lot on the podcast is that there's a saying from Aldous Huxley that the one lesson of history is that man doesn't learn the lessons of history. And we know that blood and whole blood was used you know, starting probably back in World War I. Can you give us just kind of a brief overview of how transfusion medicine has worked in the wars of the past century? Right before World War I, anticoagulants were incorporated to allow for the storage of whole blood. And whole blood was used to a decent extent within World War I, but it was really used significantly in both World War II and Korea. But by the time Vietnam came around, by that point learned how to split blood into components. So Vietnam was a mixture of using whole blood as well as red cells. And then crystalloids came along around that time too. So there was this mixture of resuscitation approaches between crystalloids, red cells, and at times whole blood. And it was after Vietnam in the civilian world where there were a lot of different forces kind of at play that led to almost the disappearance of using whole blood and the use of crystalloid and a red cell-based resuscitation practice. And it really wasn't until Iraq and Afghanistan came around that we relearned the history and kind of went back to the future with fresh whole blood and then cold stored low tide group of whole blood, which was also used in Vietnam. So it is a shame that we always seem to lose the lessons learned in each war. But you know, that's been a major focus of this past 20 years and our focus on keeping the knowledge alive, so to speak, so that if and when the next war breaks out, we don't lose these lessons learned and don't start from scratch again. So you mentioned that the blood products were broken down into separate components, and then they were retransfused using ratios of red cells to platelets to plasma. And you found in your studies that this transfusion ratio really made a difference. How did you come up with your recommendations, or how did you kind of land on studying that ratio? It's interesting. Most people think the ratios came first. You know, we wanted to give components in the one-to-one-to-one unit ratio, and then we pivoted to whole blood. But it was the opposite. As I mentioned, early in April of 2004, we focused on using whole blood as a primary resuscitation solution. And as while we were waiting to get whole blood from donors using blood components, the ratio paper came about because of a Baltimore Sun article, interestingly. In about 2006, I think it was, the Baltimore Sun had a three-day you know, series writing about the military's use of recombinant factor 7A and how we were harming soldiers. And as you might imagine, this made many of us, including me, quite upset because that was clearly not the case or not the intention. So I went into the database that we developed to specifically look at the association between factor 7A and outcomes 
But as I was doing my analysis, I noticed that both plasma and red cell yeast were both associated with worse outcomes when looked at independently. And I wanted to put both red cells and plasma into my logistic regression analysis to adjust for them. But they were both also very collinear or highly correlated to each other, which makes sense. If you're giving a lot of red cells, you're likely also giving a lot of plasma. So with statistics, I was taught, if you want to keep two variables in a regression analysis, just make a ratio out of them. So that's what I did. I evaluated the ratio of plasma to red cells as a statistical method, not as a therapy that we were using intentionally in theater. So I do the analysis, and of course, factor 7a was not associated with the outcomes, but this ratio of plasma to red cells was. It was the, the finding of high ratios being associated with improved outcomes was really the result of a statistical approach to analyzing factor 7a. It wasn't that we were specifically analyzing ratios. But to be fair, as I then went and thought about it, we did start to practice in Baghdad by intending to use a one-to-one ratio of plasma red cells while we were waiting for whole blood. So in October of 2004, just six months after I got there, with the team of Jim Sebesta, Al Beakley, Jeremy Perkins, and Kirk Grafwall and Tom Repine, we all sat in the library of the 31st Cash, uh, Ibn Sina, and we, we developed a clinical practice guideline. And the guideline was to use whole blood as our primary resuscitative solution. But until we could get the whole blood, because it took about 30 minutes or so to collect whole blood from a donor, that we wanted to use plasma to red cells in a one-to-one ratio first. We knew the blood bankers were not thrilled that we were using whole blood, so they were sending us pharesis devices so that we could collect platelets from donors instead. And since we knew they were doing that, we said, fine, we'll use red cells, plasma, and platelets in a one-to-one-to-one ratio until the whole blood was available. (laughs) And then we would use the whole blood regardless of what the blood bankers wanted us to do. So the ratio story is clearly very interwoven with the whole blood story, but that first paper that Matt Borgman and I wrote was really the result of a statistical approach, not because we hypothesized higher ratios would be associated with improved survival. So it's a very interesting story. That's an amazing story. Thanks for sharing that. I never would have thought that it came from making the statistics simpler rather than a bunch of guys going, hey, how about one-to-one-to-one? Right. Although we did think of that to emulate whole blood, but we didn't think of analyzing it in that way. The origin of it is not well known. So I'm kind of glad to get that out here now. You brought up recombinant activated factor 7A, and that was a hot topic when I was deployed in 2005, and we were seeing lots of casualties in Iraq. What was the rationale behind using that, and why is it not used anymore? Well, the rationale for its use is that in pharmacologic doses, it does give you a large thrombin burst, and that would help improve hemostasis. It was meant as a hemostatic adjunct to augment hemostasis. Now, back then, the standard approach was to give a lot of crystalloids, then red cells, and then only plasma if the INR is above more. Five platelets if it's less than 50,000. Again, we didn't have platelets out there. 
So that we were causing a lot more dilutional coagulopathy back in the early 2000s. And factor 7a seemed to be a good way to rescue a patient from that dilutional coagulopathy. But then at that time, is what I'm trying to say, is it was reasonable to use because patients were getting a significant coagulopathy, and it seemed that its use could reverse it. What happened over time, though, is that there were large trials in the civilian world that were stopped for futility, and there was also some anecdotal evidence that there was increased risks of thrombotic events. And those two factors has basically led to the non-use of recombinant factor 7a in current trauma resuscitation. But it's interesting, you know, we did publish a paper on factor 7a eventually, and it was used almost always in conjunction with whole blood and used very early in the resuscitation. And in that uh, report, where we did adjusted analyses as well, the use of factor 7a with fresh whole blood was associated strongly with improved outcomes. If we think about resuscitation or damage control resuscitation, hemostatic resuscitation, it's a bundle of care. That bundle of giving a blood-based resuscitation strategy, minimizing crystalloids, fast surgical correction, minimizing hypertension, or at times maybe, you know, permissive hypotension if there's not TBI and hemostatic adjuncts. It's that bundle that can make a difference, not one thing at a time. And I think that our problem in clinical trials has been studying one therapy at a time, and then we find that that one therapy alone in isolation doesn't change outcomes. What we really need to be doing moving forward are, are adaptive platform trials that can look at a bundle of care and determine what is the appropriate bundle of therapies for a specific patient. But it's a long answer to kind of say, I think factor 7A failed because it maybe it wasn't used in a goal-directed way, and the resuscitation changed to hemostatic resuscitation, and many of us kind of felt we didn't need factor 7A anymore when we were using either a one-to-one-to-one approach or a whole blood approach, that severe coagulopathy wasn't developing as much as it did when we first started using factor 7A. You were one of the early thought leaders in the concept of damage control resuscitation and switching from component therapy, moving towards whole blood therapy. What were the barriers? What kind of things got in the way of really kind of making that damage control resuscitation bundle stick? Well, I mean, there were a lot of barriers and, you know, a lot of it just in general change is hard. And especially in transfusion medicine, where a large focus appropriately has been on safety, especially after the HIV era. So when the transfusion community is super focused on safety, as they should be, as we all should be, there at times is a lack of ability to change care because the benefit of the therapy really isn't at times balanced appropriately with potential risk. And the risks can be overemphasized. And the transfusion community doesn't take into account the potential benefits. And of course, performing randomized trials in this area is incredibly difficult. So the ability to develop high-level evidence, randomized controlled trials to provide the evidence to change practice is quite impossible to do rapidly. So that's where the concept of focused empiricism 
has come in. I don't know if on the podcast we've had, uh, maybe Todd Rasmussen or others have talked about focused empiricism. And that's another approach to analyze whatever data you have coming in. It can be, you know, retrospective studies, prospective observational studies, and using them to learn from it within a learning healthcare system and make changes, but then reassess quickly and improve outcomes that way without waiting for the four years it takes to get funding to do a trial, the five years to do the trial, and then the one or two years to write it and get it published. You know, we had people dying on us that day, every day, and you couldn't wait for an RCT. So the barriers were getting partnership within the blood banking community transfusion medicine to facilitate the change. But despite those barriers, we still, with a few leaders within the transfusion medicine community, we were able to make those changes. But when it comes to whole blood itself, as kind of the centerpiece for hemostatic resuscitation, there were three main barriers. And that was back in the 2005 to 10 range. The dogma was you must use ABO-specific whole blood. Because if you use group O whole blood to non-O recipients, you could get specific ABO complexes that form that lead to endothelial injury. The second barrier was that whole blood should be leukocyte reduced like all other blood products were, and there was no leukocyte reduction filter that would remove white cells without moving platelets. And that's removing platelets. And that's a problem because you want the platelets in the whole blood. The third barrier was the, the dogma that cold stored platelets were not functional. And when you use cold stored whole blood in the civilian world, that those platelets wouldn't be functional, it wouldn't work. So around that time, the, the Thor Network was started. The Thor Network has been a collaboration between the U.S. military and the Norwegian Navy SEALs, actually. And it was the Norwegian Navy SEALs that reached out to us and said, hey, we've read all of your work from Iraq and Afghanistan. We want our Norwegian Navy SEALs to have the same level of care as you're providing to your combat casualties. Can we work on this project together? And then the concept was developed, let's just develop a network. That folk that was multidisciplinary, that was civilian and military, U.S. and European, that focused on improving outcomes for patients with traumatic hemorrhagic shock. And as you might imagine, our first project was working on getting whole blood available for casualties. And we worked on these three barriers. Again, ABO-specific issue, leukoreduction, reduction, and cold storage of platelets. We did the research and we actually found that actually most of the whole blood used in the past in Korea and Vietnam was group O whole blood. When we started to study it, it actually was safer to use group O whole blood then to try to use ABO-specific whole blood. And that's because based upon human error alone, you can get ABO non-compatibility when you try to get ABO-specific products, and which could be fatal. If you're only using group O whole blood, there's almost no chance of getting an ABO incompatibility of fatal hemolytic reaction. And again, whole blood is stored cold. If you want to use components that with the plates are stored warm, there's the bacterial contamination risk. So we were able to get past this issue of ABO specificity, and we got the community to agree that group O whole blood, especially low titer, would be safe to do. Luckily, around that same time, a company called Terumo developed a platelet-sparing leukoreduction filter. So now you could leukocyte-reduce whole blood, 
if you wanted to. That right now is a bit of a debate, but at least now you have the option. And then the whole issue of cold-stored platelets, again, it was us going back into the literature and actually realizing that we've known for 50 years that a cold-stored platelet is more hemostatically active. Okay, when the blood bankers taught us a cold platelet was not functional, what they meant by that was that the cold-stored platelet would circulate for a less amount of time. And that was important to the blood bankers because in the 60s and 70s when we started using platelet transfusions themselves, they were mainly being given to oncology patients where they're being used prophylactically to prevent bleeding. So if you want to prevent bleeding, you want the platelet to circulate for more days. The longer they're sitting in the circulatory system, the longer they can prevent bleeding in that oncology patient. But if you're bleeding to death, you want that platelet to be sticky. You want it to be activated and form a clot now. And if you don't form a clot in the next six hours, you're probably going to die. So it doesn't matter if a cold sore platelet is not circulating two days later right. because it was either in the clot or you probably want it out of the circulation anyway. So by refining all of those old RCTs, RCTs done in 1973, clearly showing this in humans. But the Thor network with the leadership of Colonel Andre Tapp at the ISR, a large part of his research program was focused on this and him and his team, as well as a lot of others throughout the world, but it was mainly Andre, that really reinvigorated the science on cold sword platelets. And by de facto, provided evidence that cold sword platelets in the whole blood would also be hemostatically active too. So we were able to remove the three barriers that were there. And myself, Colonel Cat, and Mark Yazer, as part of the Thor network, lobbied the ABB used to stand for American Association of Blood Banks. The ABB is a body that develops the standards for transfusion, mainly in the US, but also somewhat around the world too. We lobbied their standards committee and said, we think you should allow low tide of group O whole blood as a standard product, and here's the evidence. And we eventually got them to agree in 2017. 2018, they changed the standards. And since 2018, we went from zero trauma centers in the country using whole blood to 123. It's been an exponential rise throughout the country. And it was the experience in Baghdad and then recognition throughout the world that we needed to make this available for civilian casualties too. And the Thor Network has been a big part of that with many others around the world too. Did your team look at all at the comparative cost between the procurement development of the whole blood versus the component therapy? Interestingly, I just saw a publication not too long ago that did that. I'm blanking. Oh, I think I might have been the San Antonio group with Don Jenkins. It may have been Don. It was Don that did it. But it's a complicated question because the cost, the cost of what? People have looked at just the cost of blood itself. People have looked at the cost of all the care in the ICU or all the care in the hospital and then accounting for cost of a life lost, et cetera. Don's paper that just came out did show that there was a cost savings with the use of low tidal group O whole blood. Not only does it reduce the total amount of blood products being given, which even reduces the amount of the cost of blood itself, you wind up having less, at times, ICU length of stay, less mechanical ventilation days. There's less cost to care that way too. I'm hoping 
in some of the prospective randomized trials that are about to start, or the one that we're leading in children, we'll do a very sophisticated cost-effectiveness analysis in a large prospective randomized trial to really quantify the savings that can be captured when group O whole blood is used compared to components. Your training is in pediatric critical care, and most people realize that pediatric patients are not simply small adults that you just treat the same with smaller amounts of stuff. How would you say life-threatening hemorrhage is in the pediatric population versus the adult population? We did a NIH-sponsored prospective observational study a few years ago in close to 500 children with all causes of life-threatening bleeding, traumatic, operative, and medical bleeding. And we were surprised to see that mortality was almost double in children with life-threatening bleeding compared to adults. It was also interesting to note that the duration of an MTP protocol activation was almost twice as long, three to four hours in children compared to 90 minutes in adults. And the time to the first platelet or plasma transfusion was also in the range of 40 minutes in children, where in adults, we know it's usually a lot faster. So children seem to have a similar coagulopathy that occurs with severe bleeding, whether it's traumatic or not, but it's the response by pediatric practitioners seems to be delayed, probably due to lack of recognition and delay in care. And that's probably because we don't see life-threatening bleeding in children as much as they do in the adult world. Many adult trauma centers will see 150 MTP activations for trauma alone per year. At the children's hospitals, the average trauma MTP was around 10 to 20 a year. So if you're seeing a lot less, if your system is less practiced at doing it, probably going to take you longer to recognize it and then longer to respond to it. So that's why our group here at Pittsburgh with Christine Leeper and others are focusing on how to better describe the coagulopathy of trauma in children and then how to better respond to it. And we are close to getting funding to do a large platform trial comparing both whole blood components as well as transemic acid to placebo in a thousand uh, children to better understand how we can improve outcomes in children with life-threatening bleeding too. Can you give us just a brief overview of the types of whole blood and how it specifically differs from the component therapy? Sure. That's real important too, because when you read the literature, there are many different types of whole blood that have been studied in the past. And they all have their nuances or their differences. So it's important to understand that there's this fresh whole blood. And that's basically whole blood collected from a donor and uh, given you know, rapidly. It's stored at room temperature. Usually it's immediately given, but it can be stored for up to eight hours at room temperature before uh, it's given. Then there is often early in the war, we were giving ABO-specific fresh whole blood to casualties. It's fresh whole blood that is that has the same ABO type in the recipient compared to the donor. And then there's a cold-stored, low-tider group O whole blood. It's whole blood that's stored cold at 4 degrees Celsius. Low-tider, meaning anti-A and anti-B, is less than uh, 200, and only from group O donors. And as I mentioned before, when you have an only group O donors being used, right? there's almost no 
risk of a fatal hemolytic reaction. The low titer aspect of it does dramatically reduce the risk of hemolytic reactions within uh, the recipients too. And the cold storage allows it to be stored anywhere up to 21 to 35 days. Now, you probably do lose some hemostatic potential and, and probably even O2 delivery capacity when you store it for 21 to 35 days versus giving it you know, fresh and warm right out of the donor into the casualty. But I think it is clearly better than giving blood products back in a one-to-one-to-one unit ratio with or without crystalloids. And that's been the big question right now in the civilian and military community. But those of us who have used or transitioned from components to whole blood, nobody has gone back. (laughs) Nobody has said, well, geez, I kind of like it better when I was giving individual components. Everybody who has started to use whole blood has continued to use whole blood. And not only is it the practitioner that really, I think, appreciates its clinical effect, the blood bankers now really appreciate only dispensing one product at a time, right? Then three different products at a time. Those are the logistic advantages too. And when they can get it to the bedside faster, then we can give it faster to the patient. And we all know time is money here too. The faster we can transfuse a patient who's sanguinating, the better chances we have of improved survival. So the military has kind of moved to using the low titer O whole blood in lieu of fresh whole blood. Is that something that you think still makes sense at the point of injury, tip of the spear, out in the middle of nowhere? Can you get that there or are we going to rely on the walking blood banks? I think we need to have as many tools in the toolbox to allow for flexibility when needed. And some of that flexibility is the experience of the practitioner or the provider and the infrastructure available at that location. I do think from an efficacy perspective, fresh whole blood is the best. But from a safety perspective and being able to implement this to big army, where you have to teach tens of thousands of medics to be able to give whole blood, using cold stored low titer group of whole blood is a safer approach overall than trying to teach every medic how to do whole blood collection and administration themselves. So I think it's important to have both available, and they both are. Both are continuing to be used in theater, although clearly the op tempo has dropped dramatically over the past five, six years or so. But they're both important. They both have their pros and cons, and you want to give the right tool to the right operator at the right time for them to do their job. So they're both important, and we need both of them in the toolbox. Another kind of back to the future moment, we were speaking with a guest previously, Dr. Laura Broch, who was talking about getting freeze-dried plasma to be used by special operators. What is the role of freeze-dried plasma in the transfusion options? It's essential. It's important because while whole blood is clearly important, right? Some patients might need more than just whole blood. You need to augment the resuscitation with more plasma. And having dried plasma gives you the availability of having it available in austere environments. It could be stored on helicopters, ambulances, in the rucksack of a medic. And if it can be reconstituted with sterile water or other simple solutions within two minutes, it can be, I think, a very important 
hemostatic adjunct to use in combination with whole blood or if you don't have whole blood available, if you've run out of it, you haven't been supplied with it, et cetera, dried plasma itself may be able to bridge the patient to get them to surgical care for definitive cessation of bleeding. One of the things that I'm always amazed at currently is how technology is just rocketing forward and we can 3D print just about anything. And while I know we're not 3D printing a unit of fresh whole blood, where are we with synthetic blood products? For uh, full transparency, I'm a co-founder of a company called Calocyte that is in the preclinical development of a, a dried artificial red cell. Where we are with artificial blood products is that there are some oxygen carriers out there. The product that we're developing is, I think, the furthest along when it comes to a third-generation oxygen carrier that is encapsulated and also includes not only hemoglobin, but a 2-3 DPG system that allows for appropriate onloading and offloading of oxygen that's context-responsive, and also a met hemoglobin reductase system to reduce the development of met hemoglobin. The, the nanoparticle-based shell is relatively impervious to nitric oxide, so it mitigates the problem of that hemoglobin acting as a nitric oxide sink and causing vasoconstriction that could lead to adverse events, and this nanoparticle can be freeze-dried. If you can combine that with some of the nanoparticle-based platelet mimetic products, they have a lipid-based shell, again, also nanoparticles, and within it, or on it, now there are different substrates that can help augment platelet adhesion and aggregation. Factor eight, vomilibrands, fibrinogen, etc., and they also can be freeze-dried. If you can combine those two with dried plasma, right now you basically have a dried artificial whole blood surrogate that can be put together in different proportions for different types of severe bleeding, which is, I think, the beauty of this project. And DARPA is funding this project now to develop and the ability to co-administer a dried artificial red cell, dried plasma, dried platelet mimetic for patients with severe traumatic coagulopathy. You do know that to simplify the statistics on that, you could make the ratio one to one to one when you study it. <laughs> Brilliant idea, but actually, no. I don't think it's going to come out to one to one to one. I think based upon the coagulopathy of the patient or the patient type, we can actually custom make this whole blood-like product that is custom-made for the coagulopathy of the patient. So when DARPA put this announcement out, they actually said, we want you to put it back together to be specific for severe bleeding without TBI and severe bleeding with TBI. Thinking that how you put these back together again is not going to be a one-to-one-to-one, -to -one -to -one, but be in some different ratio specific for that type of coagulopathy. And we're excited about that because the next steps are going to be non-traumatic etiologies. Think about postpartum hemorrhage. Women who have severe massive bleeding postpartum are, might need a different combination of those components. Liver failure and severe bleeding during transplants. The future is trying to figure out how we could develop almost like custom-made artificial whole blood that's specific for a specific type of shock and coagulopathy. And that, to me, is just mind-blowing. You do a lot of 
clinical trials and study transfusion medicine. What are the challenges? What are the barriers to getting good studies done and getting them done quickly and to the bedside? The obvious answer there is funding. Lack of funding for large, well-designed and performed trials for transfusion medicine, whether it be trauma-related or not. So that's always a big barrier. But also getting access to the blood products themselves is a big barrier. I'm doing a randomized controlled trial right now of cold stored platelets compared to room temperature platelets in actively bleeding cardiac surgery patients. And getting platelets from the suppliers is becoming very, very difficult. And we're losing patients that we could enroll because I don't have platelets available from the suppliers to use in the trial. I think one way to get around that is to compensate donors for blood products. There's been a history of not compensating donors because in the past, compensating donors would time to track a potential donor that could be at a higher risk for having hepatitis or, or HIV. And if we did collect from them and weren't able to screen them out, we could have a very big problem with transmitting hepatitis, which is honestly what killed using plasma for volume resuscitation back in the 50s. I mean, the reason why we don't use plasma as a volume expander because of what I just said. Pooling plasma back in the 50s, paying donors for plasma, that led to millions of people getting hepatitis, and that stopped the compensated donor program. But today, with the nucleic acid testing that we have to screen donors, it's incredibly sensitive. And I think at this point, we should be responsibly compensating donors, not recruiting from populations that would be at higher risk of having hepatitis and HIV, being able to screen those potential donors out, but compensating them 50, 60 bucks for the two hours of sitting in an apheresis chair. And if we did that responsibly with the NAT testing, which has been dramatically reduced transfusion transmitted diseases, in addition to pathogen reduction, now you add pathogen reduction of blood products on top of it. You basically have a close to a 0% chance of having any transfusion transmitted disease. So I think the future of clinical trials in transfusion medicine needs to think about compensating donors to get that supply of blood to allow those trials to be implemented. And then probably maybe the biggest problem with transfusion trials is that the blood product coming from every donor is different. There's biologic variation in my red cells compared to yours and somebody else's and our platelets, et cetera. So that donor variation is not accounted for in these trials because we take blood from anybody, we process it in any way, and then we do a trial. And the variation, even though we're comparing cold platelets to warm platelets, mine might store better in the cold than yours, right? But if mine go room temperature and yours go cold, they may not be that different when it comes to the hemostatic activity. So we have to work towards this concept of precision transfusion medicine and leverage the differences in donor variation. And not only genetic variation, there's nutrition-related variation. What you eat and drink is going to affect the quality of your blood products. It's been well established. And then how you process blood products, how you collect it, the machines you use it on, the storage solutions that you put them in, and the temperatures you put them in also affects the quality that can be dependent upon the donor's biology. And then we use these products in patients that are either bleeding or even for prophylaxis, 
it's incredibly imprecise. It's super blunt, right? And we would never do kidney transplants trials in this way, but transfusion is a transplant. And we got a better match donor biology to a blood product manufacturing to the specific need in the patient. And I think once we do that, then we will be able to develop trials with adaptive trial design that will tell us what is the appropriate bundle of care with the appropriate blood products made from the right people in the right way to improve outcomes. I mean, that's the holy grail. And that's kind of where I see us going in transfusion medicine in the next 10 to 20 years. So I want you to hop in your Back to the Future DeLorean and go 20 years into the future. And if we haven't figured out how to completely prevent life-threatening hemorrhage, what do you see as the therapy for such? Right. We've only been focusing on one side of the equation here, the supply side. We have to work on the demand side too. So again, Colonel Andre Cap at the ISR, with many, many others, but this has been an interest of Andre's, has been focusing on metabolism-reducing agents. Hassan Alam also as well, using valproic acid, and many others have been focusing on the demand side. If you can reduce metabolism, right, for these patients in shock, you may be able to salvage a patient and keep their cells from dying if you can reduce metabolism. And there are a few potential candidates out there. I mean, they're not ready for prime time yet, but there's a lot of interest right now in reducing metabolism while we're also trying to improve ultra delivery to keep a patient alive. But that's another very exciting area that is being explored and has potential for the future. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Philip Spinella on Wardock's podcast. Phil, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights, and thank you for your service to the nation. We appreciate your time. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity, and uh, anytime. Take care. Thank you for listening to Wardocs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. Wardocs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on wardocspodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.